Did I hear what I think I just heard? You're pretty for a black girl. Oh, you're gay? You should meet my friend. She's gay too. You should smile more. Or my personal favorite, you talk like a white girl. We're Tam and Mel, and this is me, myself, I, and you. A microaggression is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal or behavioral indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, and negative attitudes towards stigmatized or culturally marginalized groups. We sat down with a few individuals that we know have experienced these microaggressions their whole life, and we want you to hear what they have to say. Um, so we just wanted to get this group together to talk through microaggressions, what your experiences have been with them, if you even know what they are, if when's the first time you heard a microaggression, how do you react to them? So I think I want to start with Janelle. Um, can you explain to me um, what your definition of a microaggression is at a time where you were affected by it and the first time you kind of felt smacked over the head with it? Yeah, so I believe microaggressions to be um, biases towards marginalized people. Oftentimes they're unintentional. I have seen in my experiences. And I think um, my first time experiencing a microaggression uh, was probably like in grade school before I even knew what a microaggression was. Uh, probably had to do with someone calling me an Oreo or you're not like the other black girls or you're different. And at the time thinking that that was somewhat of a compliment, right? Like everything that we had kind of seen at that point or been programmed to, uh, whether it be like media, like friends, all that sort of stuff was to make black people seem not as good as white people or uh, bad in some way. And so when that's already what your understanding of yourself or your own race is when you're younger and someone says to you, oh, well, you're not like them. Like, you're, you're good. You're good. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Like, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm in. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with my mom about that that she really shed some light onto why that's not right and why that's not cool and how I needed to be proud of being black. And, and we got into a deep discussion about just race and, and what it means and where these feelings that I had were coming from. But um, I myself had an unconscious bias against my own race at the time, you know? So I, I think that was probably my first experience with it. Great, thanks. Um, I know that um, some folks might not know the term Oreo, so would you mind explaining that just a little bit so they understand? I think some of us understand it wholeheartedly, uh, myself included, but um, can you let some of our listeners know what exactly that slur means? Yeah, absolutely. So when you have an Oreo cookie, it's um, dark on the outside, black on the outside, and white on the inside. So basically, it's a passive aggressive way of saying you are proper and I'm not expecting that from you or you're well put together or you resemble something that embodies quote unquote whiteness. 
and that's good. And you are just encased in this black shell. Got it. Thank you so much. Um, MJ, have, when's the first time or when's the first time that that was, became a part of your vernacular? Like you knew what that was and you have either you've experienced it or you've had friends experience it or family experience it. Backtracking, the first time I experienced it was as a kid. Um, actually, I'm mostly Filipino. So um, since we were kids, my parents would actually take us back to travel to visit our family there. And colorism is huge out there. I didn't understand because I was like barely four years old at that. And I was already getting scolded for playing in the sun because I would get too dark. And like they were giving us papaya soap to lighten our skin. And, you know, I didn't like that was the first experience of you know microaggressions in my own community that I had and then it strung out to elementary school when I was more cognitive and understanding what was happening kindergarten and people would assume that I was Chinese um and that I knew karate and taekwondo I didn't even know what a Korean person was at five years old like growing up where I grew up you know I grew up <laughs> predominantly like with black and white folks a sprinkle of like military brats with you know United Colors of Benetton around. <laughs> um, but for the, you know, like I do have Chinese in me, but for the most part, I'm Asian Pacific Islander uh, with Portuguese, Irish, and Malay. So it's kind of like, it, like as a kid, it's like all these people are coming at me, teasing me, and it, that was like my first experience with it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Lauren, can you tell us about an experience or an understanding that you've had about microaggressions in recent years or maybe even in the past? Yeah, so I mean, I've heard of microaggressions, you know, for for years, but had I really internalized what it means, not really. And so throughout those years, understanding, knowing what it is, and then being able to kind of recognize it going forward, um, that was new. Um, and so I think for me, in my experience with them, really has been in my recent years in in higher education working with more men and I, I daily men will call uh, wanting information about the program that I'm running but they don't really want to listen to what I have to say and that is a constant and some days you just you want to talk back to them and be like why are you even bothering calling me you don't actually want to hear what I have to say you just want to hear yourself speak but it's not even, I just feel like they're not even worth that energy, which I don't know is a positive. I don't know if it'll change anything in the environment, but it's not impacting the program that I am running. But that is something daily um, from a lot of the different men that I work with. And before that, I hadn't experienced that in, in the workplace. So, so that was, it's new for me. And I think that's, um, I think that's an interesting take. I think because so often we talk about microaggressions, we often talk about people of color and we're not talking about marginalized groups as a whole, which women are included in that. Um, and how largely we are passive aggressively spoken to. Um, so it just goes both ways, right? And so I think my question to you, Lauren, because you brought up something interesting is, is it worth the energy to address the behavior? Because I think all of us get to a point where we brush it off, we brush it off, we brush it off, brush it off, and then there's the one day, 
you know, the one day that you get caught on the wrong side of that, that bed, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you're just not having it. So how, how do you address it when it comes up on those days? Like, or do you just not, and do you just not bother and you feel like you haven't reached to that point just yet? Or have you found yourself being in a position, not just at work, but in other places where men are speaking to you a certain way that you say something? Um, I think in the workplace, for me, it's a little different that I view it as they're, ju- they're trying to assert their power over me and because they don't think I'm on the same level as them, even though my title is actually higher than some of the men that I'm referring to or thinking of in my mind right now. Um, so it is in that way, I I don't feel like that is affecting the work that I am doing. And when it gets to the point where I feel like it is negatively affecting my work and actually my program and the work that I'm doing with the students, then that would be the point when I would feel the need to say something. But right now, I'm not there because I it, I do brush it off, um, but I, I keep it in my mind for future possible incidences where it may come to the point where it does negatively affect my work. Um, and that, I think, would be the point where I would probably have to say something, or I feel the most sure. comfortable to say something. Yeah, and I think, so do you think that that experience, and you know, as a white woman, do you think the experience that you have regarding male privilege affects how you see people of color and the microaggressions in their dealings, right? Because you're, ex- you're experiencing it on a different level. So that to me, there's this bridge mm-hmm. of empathy that um, some people can get to and some people cannot. So I, I wonder how you can easily get there. Just someone who has had multiple conversations with you on the subject matter Mm-hmm. Is it easier for you to bridge? And then how do we teach others? How do you think we can start to teach others to make the connection that you are actually dealing with very similar issues um, that people of color are dealing with as well? It's the same playbook, mm-hmm. right? So how do you feel like you're able to so swiftly make that connection? Um, so I think, you know, for me, I'm going to kind of backtrack for a second. So in in my career, you know, and and acknowledging my own biases, which is a constant, and it's always a, a little bit of a, oh, you 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 had that thought. Why did you have that thought? But years ago, I wouldn't have acknowledged it in the way of actually thinking further about it and seeing how it actually would affect my relationships. And I'm only I'm really just speaking about professionally, but I mean, overall, um, and just being able to cultivate relationships, real relationships based on real conversations that you have. But you can only do that if you are acknowledging your own biases. And I think like part of the definition of microaggression, you know, like your implicit bias coming to life. And so those realizations, when they happen, it's so important. And this is, you know, fairly new, the past 10 years, probably for me. being able to acknowledge them and then be comfortable with being uncomfortable with these conversations. When I first started in higher ed, I was working with students with disabilities and the Bronx. So I was working with students from all different cultures, all different races, and they were students with disabilities. So, and I had never done that before. And so coming in with this 
perception that I, I had a really good idea what they were going through. Why would I think that? What in the world would give me idea that I had any idea that I understood these people's experience? So, but working in higher ed, the students, they're a little bit older from working with, with more of the adolescent population I was working with before, they are quicker to say, no, I need to tell you, I need to tell you something and we need to have a conversation. But then being able to be open about that conversation and being able to hear it and be like, you know what, you're right, I don't, I don't know. So please tell me. Um, so I got off a little on, off track there, Melanie, but I think that has helped me to then have these conversations and when I see those microaggressions being directed towards me, then it's, yeah, now, okay, now I can eat more easily connect what these students are explaining to me so I can relate them, so. No, I appreciate that. I think that's an interesting perspective and I think that not enough people are making these connections on how um, they're being marginalized and how the playbook is very similar across the board and, and that if we would just make those teeny tiny bridges um, with each other, we would find that we have a lot more in common um, if we're not, you know, the 1% white and male than we think that we do. Um, Janelle, can you kind of explain how you deal with these things? I know that they happen in all facets of life. I know in my personal experience, um, they happen everywhere from my job to the grocery store. Um, so can you kind of explain what some of your experiences specifically have been, but more importantly, how you've addressed them? And I think I'm, I'm particularly interested in clever ways to check somebody in this space, because I, I love it. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of what your experience has been there. Yeah, so in, in my work, in really just daily life, uh, I deal with microaggressions constantly, whether it be um, for my race, whether it be the fact that I'm a woman, whether it be my age. Um, in the work that I do, I'm consistently surrounded by older white men who think that I have no idea what I'm doing when that just isn't the case. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, and on the topic of work, you know, I feel like I'm still trying to navigate it being so young in my career, still trying to figure out what is the right way to approach it, given all the politics that come to play a lot of times. Um, but the newest trick that I uh, just learned was kind of just repeating the question back to people. Um, the, the one that I love and the one that I get the most is, uh, is that your real hair? And so now my response will be, well, is that your real hair? And I think a lot of people that it comes from, predominantly white women, uh, will be taken back by that question and be taken back by kind of how absurd it sounds. And hopefully, <laughs> in repeating it back to them, they can realize, oh, well, that is a silly question. Why did I assume that that wouldn't be your real hair? And why would I assume that this is my real hair? So, you know, I think that's, that's gonna be my newest thing moving forward. But um, I really specifically in the workplace try to take this approach of learning, take it as an opportunity for someone to learn something new and grow. 
um, ask lots of questions is, is my thing. Um, I think people often reveal a lot about themselves when you just simply ask them questions based on how they answer it. Um, it's a nice way to, to understand maybe where they're coming from and why they might ha have chosen that thing to say to you um, instead of automatically just kind of assuming uh, the worst intentions, which is always easy for us to do. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I think my favorite is I keep asking people, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? So I, I just, it's, again, that's like such a great tactic is to ask, answer a question with a question, right? Clarify your shenanigans. <laughs> MJ, what about you? Uh, that props to Janelle for that. I resonated with a lot of that. Um, in terms of my progressions in the workplace, like where I'm at now, I don't think I experienced them as much as I did when I was on the agency side. And, you know, being a triple threat, like I'm a queer women, woman of color with multiple degrees. And I just could not get up that chain for whatever reason it was. And like you all worked with me and knew how smart and capable I was, but it was, it was backbreaking almost. And like, <clears throat> you know, just knowing that I had these three X's against me and looking at everyone else that I was up against, like, I was never going to be set up for success, you know, for success in that industry. And, you know, it was a hard pill to swallow, um, but, you know, it's real, you know. And I also really use that same method about asking, you know, like throwing the question back at people and it really puts them off balance. And I just, I don't know, it's kind of messed up, but I love seeing like their expressions when it's done in person because it's just like, yeah, you didn't think about that, did you? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really funny that you say that expressions. Um, I, you know, going back to the Oreo comment, because that was my jam too. I got that all the time. You talk like a white girl. And um, I used to find that really interesting in the sense of, because when people are saying that, they're equating the way that you talk with intelligence. And they're basically saying that it's shocking that you are intelligent for a person of color. Um, and I would speak to people on the phone and they would always think that I was white. And I will say this to this day, I, my favorite thing is showing up and the look on the face is like, oh, <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. That is my absolute favorite thing because I know exactly who I'm dealing with in that moment, right? You know exactly who you're dealing with. You know what comes next because you've been down this road before and you're dealing with somebody who's got some shit they need to work out from a bias perspective. Um, and then it helps you, you know, cope moving forward. So I think one thing that I want to address because we talk about microaggressions, we talk about us being the victims of these microaggressions, but it is safe to say there have been times in our lives with family members, with whomever, where we might have been the aggressor. Um, so I want to start with MJ. Can you think of a time where maybe you have said something to another group of people where you might have been the aggressor in that moment and were you able to check yourself and 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 really understand that hey that's not cool or i need to think about things before i say them yep um so i think some of you on this call can um it'll resonate that you're military brats and probably traveled a bit and like did schooling in different areas and for me it was like pretty much back and forth from the Atlantic to across the pond in like parts of Europe. So what was customary elsewhere was like, you know, to ask people where they're from 
and you know like coming back to the states like that's not an okay thing to ask because like there's different layers on top of that which might be offensive and you know i didn't see it as problematic until i got to college and you know you're here with this like melting pot of people that represent america and you're sitting there asking like an Iranian person where you're from because you want to find out like which Middle Eastern country she's from that was a microaggression you know and things like that I didn't realize that I was actively participating in until like later later on in life like in my late 20s after college and stuff. Great Lauren can you think of a time where you might have been the aggressor? Yeah unfortunately I, I thought of quite a few times uh, because this has really been uh, you know, it's a process, and um, but recently, I, last year, I had a student who, and this this is just one example, but um, was constantly late or missing their earlier class. And so I met with the student. I, what's going on? You can't miss this. You have to pass this class. What's going on? Um, and they said the bus, the bus. I I can't get the bus. And like, well, you have to get the bus. Why are you, you have to? You know, this is this is your responsibility. This is your class. You registered for it. This is your responsibility. You have to make it work. And the students sat down. Miss. For me to make it to this class, I have to wake up at whatever time and be waiting out at the bus stop for over an hour. And we're talking middle of winter, it's probably dark, um, pitch black probably. And they're like, I don't live in a good neighborhood. I don't feel safe waiting out of the bus stop for an hour. So right away, I realized that I was assuming that the student had the same access to transportation as I do. So it's easy for me to say, you have to get to this class. Why can't you get the bus? Because I can get to work on time. Why can't you get the class? Um, so instead of just going with that same narrative, we actually sat down and had a conversation about, okay, what else can we do? How can we be creative here? What are some other options that you might have? Because I realized I was making assumptions and I this was my bias coming through very clearly. And that student, I'm so glad that that student actually spoke up and continued that conversation with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, they remind me, uh, a lot that I am I have different opportunities than they do um, so yeah. no I appreciate you saying that and then I think that leads us to an interesting question and I kind of want to throw this to Janelle and it kind of backs us into the, the comment that you made about is your hair real so how do we discern when the people that we know and love in our lives or the people that we see at work every day have a genuine question, right? How do you discern when you're genuine, like your hair is so beautiful, is it real or whatever? And they're just inarticulate opposed to being aggressive. How do you think we manage that? I know that's something that I struggle with. Um, people like to touch my hair. I find that to be incredibly offensive and I'm not a German shepherd, right? Um, but then do we wanna walk through the world assuming that everybody is being an aggressor and there might be a genuine curiosity. How do we move through that and how do you move through that? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it immediately actually reminded me of this experience I had on a cruise ship 
once, um, you know, I was on a cruise going to the Bahamas. So of course I had box braids in my hair. They were long, they were beautiful. Um, and I was in the elevator uh, with two other white women. And uh, one said, oh my God, your hair is so beautiful. And just immediately proceeded to touch it. And then her friend was like, oh my gosh, no, you can't do that. They don't like that. And then I was like, okay, what am I more offended by in this moment? <laughs> yeah, feeling like a zoo animal or exactly. the fact that there was a question about box braids, yes. Right. Um, and so to answer your question, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I think tone, the tone in which it's, the tone in which they come at you with uh, really kind of sets the tone, pun intended, uh, for, for how you address the question. And if you can feel the intent, I find that's when my meter is like high or low, hot or cold. And so I'm always willing to teach someone something. So, if it's a genuine question, I will answer it, but I'm also going to tell you why this question I didn't feel was appropriate and or the yes. way that you asked it wasn't appropriate. And maybe here are some other ways that you could approach this in the future. Oh, and by the way, don't do it again. So I think that's really how I tackle that for the most part. Well, you're setting boundaries. Exactly. You're saying that, you know, this is a space in which I want to discuss this because you're asking about me um, and you're being mildly offensive. I was raised similarly to understand intent. And that's an energy, right? I think we're all pretty um, intuitive human beings. And that, I mean, the energy you get from a person can tell you everything. And I've had people ask me the same questions in the same day and my response would be different because their energy was different. Um, so yeah, so I, I appreciate that. Um, I think I want to want to dive into the ever elusive bias, which I think Lauren has brought up. Everybody's kind of brought it up at some point. Um, and I'm going to start with MJ because I, I, I really want to talk through how this contributes to a microaggression. We all know it does contribute and it has everything to do with it. But where do we think that these biases are coming from? And I want to talk about all areas like television, music, pop culture, you know, where do these things show up? The press, which is my biggest pain point, um, and the depiction of people of color, um, and women, you know, this is, this is to me a, a much larger conversation, but I just kind of, I want to tap into that a little bit. And I just, MJ, I really want to hear what you have to say, because as you mentioned, I, I love the way you put it, you're a triple threat. And so you are probably, <laughs> you're, your experience in this is compounded, right? So I just, I really want to start with you. Ooh, biases. One of my favorite things that I've been tackling personally for myself with yes. my therapist for two years. Um, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard conversation, but speaking to someone that is a triple threat and my parents are both immigrants um, with indigenous ancestry to other lands, um, I would say like for me, like my recognition of biases stem from education of colonization, like colonization is where 
where the root of this is, you know, because from colonization stems patriarchy and so on. And it's a chain reaction. And like, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years that these biases are embedded in our DNA almost um, through our ancestors. And, you know, that brings me into talking about transgenerational and intergenerational trauma that's being passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it's only now that people are starting to talk about it to like unpack some of these biases that are embedded in our DNA. Um, so that's, that's a start. <laughs> that's where I, I believe the root comes from. Um, and you know, unpacking it is a personal thing for everyone because we have different roots, we have different histories. And, and so on. Um, but for me personally, uh, you know, the past two years, it's been a crazy growth experience for me, like experiencing, like unpacking devices, like from my own family, being a queer person of color, being the only daughter in my family that ended up being gay. Um, you know, I've been on my own since I've been since 16 or so. And all the odds were against me. Like my parents did not think that I could amount to anyone because I was gay. And to give a little bit of background, they're hardcore Filipino Irish. They have their own global um, ministry um, that I used to serve in when I was a kid. So I would travel as a teen to different um, states and in Canada, Philippines, like talking to kids at youth camps you know, and next thing you know, like, I fall in love with someone in the ministry, and I'm like, oh, crap, dude, I'm gay, like, what do I do, so, like, you know, trying to be, like, open about it with my parents, like, it didn't go well, you know, it didn't go well at all, and I am going to be 42 this year, and we are just starting to have those conversations, um, so, like, yeah, it's been a wild ride, um, just really unpacking things with my family and like trying not to rush them because they're old folks, you know, like to their defense, they are set in their ways, but you know, it doesn't hurt to try to educate them. And like, I'm seeing progress with them, which is great down to who they're voting for. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, that's a win for me because my birthday four years ago was trash. <laughs> Let me say that <laughs> it was complete trash. So, oh. <laughs> Yeah. So like, you know, I love talking about biases. I love calling people out and I love when people call me out for my own stuff because like, you know, we're all, we all have it. progress. There's exactly like, you know, mm -hmm. we're all learning and it's, you know, like for me, it's always, and, and, you know, like always enter conversations with empathy, you know, like that's the number one thing for me is like, you don't know anyone's background or like where they're coming from, you know, regardless of its race if it's like gender stuff like or whatever so like you always have to try to like have the best eye of empathy when you're entering a situation and I think that helps um you know empathy and humility to be able to like press the pause button and really listen to what someone's telling you if they're calling you out for a bias or something before responding because at the end of the day like as good as our intentions are you know it's all about the impact these days so Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that, MJ. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, I'm having like little like I'm having mom feels. I appreciate you sharing that. And I, you know, we always talk about. I think as a group, I think several of us have had this conversation in the past. You know, this 
acceptance is a bitch and it is hard when it doesn't always come right away from the ones that you love and we love you MJ and I'm really glad that you're getting to that space with your family all right so I just want to kind of start talking about you know we talk a little bit about bias and I think now we need to talk a little bit about privilege and microaggressions and how they are a big fat ball of wax molding together and so Lauren I just kind of want to get your take on that and how you think they bridge to each other and how that kind of affects how people interact with each other. So my perspective on, on privilege and microaggression, I think they're so intertwined because someone who is privileged doesn't have to really internalize those microaggressions that they could can be doling out like they can you know not actually um, acknowledging that what they're saying is an insult or a slight just to to someone and not having to actually hear when someone is saying that's actually not okay that person of privilege doesn't always have to acknowledge that in a way that will have them continue to learn and you know and understand why that's a microaggression and where that comes from um, but that's really what privilege is not having to do that work and not having to fully understand where that comes from um, because especially so I'm, I'm, I'm a white woman I grew up in a predominantly white town yes there was a little bit of diversity but for the most part um, it was a white community. My high school was, I'm, I, I can think of, you know, probably on both hands, the number of black students that were in my class. And I graduated with over 400 students. So that's, that ratio is huge. So, so then, you know, as getting older and having my own experiences and, and traveling more and, and being surrounded by different cultures, races, that's when things really started to, to click for me. Um, but, you know, because I had that privilege of not having, having to ask myself those questions, as I got older, it was cringeworthy. It was embarrassing that I never had these opportunities to have these conversations. Um, so, and there were times where I was like, hmm, where did that come from? Why would you say that? Um, but that was my privilege growing up and never being challenged to question that, but also not having those questions, those, those conversations, I think was a disservice as well. Um, so I think they're very much intertwined, but I think it also comes from, you know, microaggressions kind of getting off the privilege part comes from someone's experiences and maybe even having one experience will cultivate a bias and a mindset on an entire group of people. And I think that's so dangerous. And but I think it's also something that you have to acknowledge. Um, otherwise, you're going to continue to to cultivate those negative feelings. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because it is, um, we do this lumping, right, of people, we lump them together. And we say that I had this experience, which could be a very valid experience good no matter who's at whose hands right um but let's just say you weren't a child that went on to travel the world and 
experienced different cultures and 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 different ethnicities and 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 opened up your mind to that you would very much be stuck in that experience and um that's to your point very very dangerous is to not um assign a behavior to a group of people especially a behavior by one individual mj what do you have to say to some of that a lot of what lauren said also resonated um with me like even like regardless if i grew up with predominantly filipino and black people it, like i see it happen i've seen it happen a lot like growing up janelle yeah so i'm really glad that this came up um because this actually reminds me of something that i've recently been dealing with since I've moved to New York. Um, and that's really this concept of class privilege, class privilege and not just white privilege. And so um, I found myself, uh, whenever there's a homeless person, I would assume that they were on drugs. And it's like, well, why am I making that assumption? right? You can not have a home and also not be on drugs. They're not synonymous. And um, I also had experiences with people of my own race that I would kind of pass by in the streets or in a rougher neighborhood, and I would feel uncomfortable. And I'm like, well, why do I feel uncomfortable? Like, this person's Black. Like, I'm Black. Like, we're, we're good. This isn't a thing. And I realized that it really had nothing to do with the color of their skin. It had more so to do with how we were brought up and kind of like the environment in which we were surrounded by. And that class privilege has just been something that has been at the forefront of my mind lately because yeah, it, it does play a role in a lot of these unconscious biases and microaggressions and um it's not something that i feel like gets talked about a lot but i'm now at this stage where i'm questioning what came first the race debate or the class debate and you know there there's a lot of research to be done there um yes. but i'm i'm super glad that this came up I think with all of that we just discussed about privilege and bias and how they contribute to microaggressions, I think it's time to kind of start talking about um, the idea that identifying a microaggression, identifying that this is a boundary that somebody has crossed, and then what do you do when somebody says you're being too sensitive? So when we talk about micro-invalidation, um, how do we combat that? How do we feel about that? Do we feel like that's a made up word? I'm going to be honest when I heard it, I was like, who made up that word? What does that mean? And then when it was explained to me, I was like, I know exactly what this means. So I'm going to start with Janelle and how you have dealt with somebody calling you too sensitive or you're overthinking it. I um, mean, just really devaluing your feelings, which I think is prominent in black women in particular. Um, their feelings are pulled to the wayside because they're looked at as aggressive anyway. So we shouldn't really have any feelings. Yeah, so 
anytime I get met with this, um, it just makes me want to sit down and have a really deep discussion and figure out, well, why exactly don't you feel like what I'm saying is valid? And again, I go back to the question asking. I have a lot of questions. Well, why are you so upset by what I'm saying? Or, or why do you feel differently? Has your experience differed from mine? In what way? Um, that's how I like to attack that because it's, it's not right. Nobody likes to feel like their issue is looked down upon or, or whatever. I hate uh, getting a I don't see color. I hate getting a, you know, all lives matter because you're not really acknowledging what the issue is here. You're glossing it over the surface and you're putting it in this generalized box, but you don't actually know what the core root is. So let's sit down and have a conversation and kind of excavate what that is. Yeah, I mean, at what point do you say, are you just an asshole? Like if you're unwilling, like in any circumstance, if you're unwilling to say, hey, like I didn't, I didn't understand that I was offending you, maybe you're also just an asshole. So I think that there is that, that area too, is there some people that you're just not gonna get through to um, and they're never gonna really understand that. And there are a lot of people who are unwilling. Like the fact that you are willing to have the conversation says more about you than the person who's offending you, right? Who might not be willing to sit down and talk to you about it. MJ, have you ever had that deep conversation where you have to sit down and be like, hey man, like, mm -mm, that's not a thing we do here? Yeah, a lot. And I like to join this topic with toxic positivity because I feel like a lot of times they go hand in hand. And, you know, the person um, with those comments, like a lot of the times because it's a bias, they're thinking that they're being helpful. They're thinking that they're encouraging you. Whereas like, you know, like you might be really hurting my feelings because I might be really scared of the fire. So like my fears might be valid, but for you to be like, oh, everything's going to be fine. You know, as an example, is kind of like not acknowledging how I'm feeling. Yes, I know that feelings are, are fluid and they'll change, but let me have my moment. You know, let me be sad. Let me deal with these feelings that I'm having and not be silenced because you know that everything's going to be okay. You know, like, yeah, that toxic positivity, that's another can of worms. But I mean, that's a whole other episode, you guys. We'll call <laughs> no. you. Um, so I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you for spending time with us, to talking with us, to sharing your voice with us. Um, we do like to end every show um, talking about our open hearts um, because it takes an open heart to be able to have these conversations. It takes an open heart to look at the world the way that it is and not cry every day. Um, to lead our family members and our friends who are well-meaning but missing the mark, to lead them down a righteous path. Um, so I'm going to ask each and every one of you what your favorite thing is about having an open heart and what's the thing that's the most valuable about having an open heart. And I'm going to start with Lauren. Well, I think it's so valuable to have an open heart because that's the only way that you can cultivate real relationships. If you're not willing to accept differences and 
acknowledge biases that you may have and really truly understanding the people around you, you don't really have an open heart and you're not going to be able to develop real, true, genuine relationships. So I think that correlates to truth and understanding and wanting to understand the people around you. Janelle? I think the best thing is the empathy and perspectives that you get from it. I think perspective is so important, not just in this conversation about microaggressions and or race, sexual orientation, gender, whatever. It affects all aspects of life. And if you can't understand where someone is coming from, then you, you can't have a really good understanding of who they are as a person. And so I really love that about having an open heart. I love that, MJ. Um, I agree with everything that Lauren and Janelle just said. And, um, you know, I just want to stress like having an open heart for me is, you know, always leading with empathy, always having humility, always having respect. Um, if you start with, with those three things and like open up your heart, like the healing really begins within yourself, like before you can go ahead and like start schooling people, right? Um, and also with that, like the healing never stops. It's going to be a continual process to, to pass down through like your chosen family, like you all here on the line with me now, like I feel like a good connection with you guys and I hope that we keep in touch after this. Um, and yeah, so those three things, lead with those three things, have an open heart, your personal growth will happen. And once people start seeing the authenticity in that, it rubs off like wildfire. So I think what we learned in this chat is that you did hear what you thought you just heard and that um, you have to be comfortable addressing the things that you just heard um, and be in a space where those around you are willing to hear it. And of equal importance, be mindful of the things that you say. Exactly. And on that note, we are going to stop talking and thank you so much for spending your time with us. Catch you on the next one.